0: Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at xfinitymobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Dan White. The following is an excerpt from my upcoming nonfiction book, The Cactus Eaters, about my attempt to through-hike the Pacific Crest Trail with my then-girlfriend, Allison. Now, the Pacific Crest Trail is a 2,650-mile national scenic trail that runs from California, Oregon, and Washington. It connects the borders of Mexico and Canada. I did this on a whim with very little advanced preparation. This scene takes place in the extreme southern Sierra in a parched landscape just north of the Kern County city of Tehachapi. Now, most people, when they think of the southern Sierra Nevada, think of trees and mountains and glaciers and things like that. But I want you to scratch those images from your mind and think of a really deserty landscape with a lot of vultures and lizards and things like that. Weary of my excessive pack weight, in this scene, I decide to dump out a large quantity of our water without consulting Allison. My rationale was this. Water weighs 8.3 pounds to the gallon. I figured that if I dumped out a large amount of our water, we could reach the nearest spring ahead of schedule, thus canceling out the need to carry that excess water in the first place. Now, the plan did not come off quite as smoothly as I'd hoped. This is called Operation Water Dump. No turning back now. Operation Water Dump was in full effect. Allison turned her back to me, heading behind a tree to pee. The time to act was now. I took out Betty, our trusty black water bag, which held several gallons. I spilled some of her contents on the desert floor. I can't say exactly how much I spilled. All I know is that Betty was quite a bit lighter when I was through. The water made a choking sound and an accusing snarl. It burbled into the cracks of the earth. Allison returned much more quickly than I'd expected, "'and caught the tail end of what I was doing. "'What are you doing over there?' she said. "'Ugh,' I said. "'I only got rid of a very small amount of water. "'I pointed out correctly "'that we still had about a gallon of water "'between the two of us for sixteen miles. "'Allison seemed baffled, but not particularly upset, "'and my backpack was lighter now. "'In fact, I was quite comfortable.' Allison eyed me warily for a moment, but said nothing as we kept walking through the still mild morning landscape. I had no second thoughts about my admittedly unusual plan. I supposed on second thought that I could have just dumped the excess water down my throat instead of on the ground. Aside from this, I had no regrets. And for the next quarter of a mile, the plan worked like a dream. The ground was flat, and the rich desert dirt served as a shock absorber for my knees. Allison led the way. But the moment when I was just starting to fall into bliss and wondering whether I should dump out even more water when I got the chance, something happened that gave me pause. The sun got hot, the land got steep, and the sweat started pouring out of me as if through a spigot. A waterfall of perspiration gathered in the brim of my survival hat. Sweat ran down my shirt, and it would not stop as the trail went from kind and squishy to hard and punishing. We hiked up an expanse of red rocks that slid out from under us as we climbed a mountain above an empty valley with the Mojave sands just beyond it. Edwards Air Force Base, immense squares and a dry lake bed, lay in the middle distance on the desert floor. As I stared across the playa, the flaw in my plan revealed itself. Allison, blissfully ignorant of Operation Water Dump, did not know that we had to hurry to reach the spring. She saw no reason to quicken the pace. I hiked behind her, making broad flourishes with my arms and hands, trying to make her walk faster. It didn't work. Instead, she kept borrowing my water bottles, taking hot, wet smacks out of them. There was nothing I could do. What's wrong, she asked, when she saw my sour face. "'Scared to be caught in a lie, I kept silent. "'The land spread out in accordion folds, brown and dusty. "'Pines hung their heads. "'Their crisp brown needles lay in piles at our feet. Five hours into our journey, "'I rounded yet another bend in the trail "'and saw nothing but moon rocks and black canyons. "'It was time to pray. "'Please, God, get us out of this. "'Don't let us die of thirst.' please God. Let me revise what I said. First of all, please don't let Allison find out that this is my fault. Secondly, please don't let us die of thirst. I'm getting thirsty, Allison said an hour later. I pretended at first not to hear her request for water. Finally, I handed her one of the bottles slowly. She downed a quarter of it on the spot. Ah, she said and handed the bottle back to me. I was just about to put the bottle back in my pack when she extended her hand again and smiled. More, she said, and took a second gulp. I couldn't bear any more of this. I winced. I blinked. I kept leaning back and forth, squashing my face into my left shoulder and grimacing. What's wrong, she said. Um, I, uh, we don't have as much water as you think. Hours later, when the sun set, we camped beneath a slowly turning windmill, rising over a clearing in the tall trees. We rationed every sip. We even skipped dinner because it would have taken too much water to boil up our freeze-dried meal. Even then, I did a good job of hiding my treachery. She knew I'd dumped some water, but she still had no idea how much. Twilight, then cool darkness, covered us. Next morning, we decided to gun it as hard as we could for Golden Oak Spring. I revealed to Allison that the state of our water supplies was now truly dire, and that I had gotten rid of more water than she might have thought. But even then, I didn't tell her the extent of what I'd done. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. For a while, we walked without talking. Freight trains moaned their way up to Hatchby Pass in the distance. Nothing grew but the lumpen forms of juniper trees, "'we passed through a pinion forest for half a mile "'and dropped to a dirt road "'that reached to the bottom of a scabby little mountain with no name. "'Far to the east was Soledad Peak, "'a pinheaded king in repose, "'arms outstretched a road running up its torso. "'In her hands, Alison held a Nalgene bottle "'with the last sips of our tap water "'that drops plinked when she shook the bottle. "'She would not take a sip. "'Instead, she handed me the bottle.' Drink, she said. You're sweating more than I am. You need it more than I do. Something about the gesture caught me by the throat. I wanted to weep, but my tear ducts were jammed from the dry heat. Allison tried to distract me as we walked into the haze. She wondered if she could find a job as a journalist and I could be a ranger or an adjunct professor. But she was trying to flummox me with false joy. She was trying to reassure me with stories of our bright future, but her reassurances had the opposite effect. When you know you've imperiled yourself and your lover, and your lover should be white-hot with fury, but instead she's calm and goofy, you know that things are even worse than you surmised. The desert commented on its own dryness. The wind rushed like water, a mirage washed up against a pile of rocks. To get technical about it, this part of the PCT wasn't true desert in the strictest sense. The trail only passes through about 20 miles of real desert but the fact that there were some trees out here just made it worse. The trees knew how to find the water, but they weren't saying. My thoughts traveled back to a book I once loved, The Big Book of Desert Adaptations or something like that. The book's undisputed stars were the kangaroo rats, who never drink water in all their lives, but manage to survive in the desert, no problem. Kangaroo rats take in moisture by gnawing on seed pods, collecting vapor in their nasal membranes, and chewing their own turds. Oh, to be a spadefoot toad, able to concentrate liquid wastes into 40% urea, conserving water while forming a greasy layer that coats the skin like Amaral and seals moisture inside. How I envied the legless lizard, shy and ugly in his burrow. He uses his tongue to grab droplets suspended like jewels between grains of sand. Without the walking stick I'd left behind in the motel, it was hard for me to prop myself up. I tripped into a thorn bush and fell. Allison exhorted me to be brave, to stay calm to cowboy up. She gave me a weak smile. I smiled back. I knew in my heart that my clever girlfriend would find some way out of the misery I had created for us. Just off the trail, we saw the first fresh, lush thing we had seen in many miles, a prickly pear cactus with fat lobes growing from a thin stalk. Pink flowers caught the sun. The skin was shiny as a Granny Smith apple. Did you know, said Allison in a measured tone, that you can get water out of a prickly pear cactus? I wanted to believe. But when you're as desperate as I was, it's important to play devil's advocate. I looked Alice in the eye and said, Well, yes, I've heard you can get water from a cactus, but aren't prickly pears poisonous? Prickly pears aren't poisonous, she said. That's it. I was convinced. I reached in my shorts and found the Swiss Army knife. I took the blade out and used my bandana to wipe it clean. I knelt down in front of the prickly pear, my heart beating with excitement. I was about to be a survivalist. Even better, I was about to have a great story to tell my grandchildren, the one about the time when old grandpa was sucking his tongue in a desert, came across a cactus, and got a hell of a good drink out of it. Giddy with thirst, mad with expectation, I hacked off the fattest, juiciest lobe. Goodbye, torment. Farewell, Misery. Today I would prove my self-sufficiency to the world. Today I would get the last laugh on nature. It felt so good to be king of the desert and to know for sure that I was doing the right thing and that all the people who ever doubted me were full of crap. I laughed in triumph as I popped the cactus morsel into my mouth. Confidence washed over me, even though Allison looked upset for no reason. What was her problem? I was savoring this moment preparing to bite that cactus flesh as hard as I could. And what would it be like to drink the cactus's sweet nectar, I wondered. I suspected it would be like those fruity gummy candies with a liquid center that spurts in your mouth. Allison emitted an odd neighing sound. She was saying something to me that sounded vaguely like stop, but I couldn't be sure. It was as if I'd gone deaf in her tonal range. With no further delay, I crouched in the dirt and bit down with all of my might. And then I started chewing. I close my eyes and take deep breaths. The memories return to me. Memories separate from each other, yet connected like flashcards. The first thing I remember was Allison. She was talking to me. No, she was screaming. And the second thing I remember was the cactus. Its flavor reminded me of green giant green beans with a jicama aftertaste. The next thing I remember is the texture of the prickly pear. I thought it would be luscious, filling my throat with desert nectar. But the cactus had the limp consistency of a cucumber left to wilt overnight in a salad bar. Finally, I remember the pain as hundreds of needles known to plant lovers as glockids plunged themselves into my mouth, tongue, and gum. The spikes were tiny and translucent, very hard to see when you're sleepy and dehydrated. Some were half buried beneath the cactus's flesh. That's why it surprised me so much when they rose up to penetrate my mouth, slamming into my inner cheeks as if someone had shoveled a small porcupine into my mouth. I spat out my spiny food and fell to the ground. Allison burst into tears. "'I guess she isn't all that dehydrated after all,' I thought to myself "'as the water poured freely from her eyes. "'I'm so sorry,' she said. "'I tried to stop you. Didn't you hear me? "'You're supposed to remove the spines first, Dan. "'You're supposed to remove the spines.' "'At that moment, it was as if I was watching myself from a crane "'hanging several dozen feet in the air, "'and I was a director of a documentary, "'looking down on the ground and watching a stranger writhe "'making sand angels on the desert dirt.' I remember Allison's screams and hearing myself scream, our mouths yapping together, until I could no longer separate the screams. It seemed to me that our screams were echoing through the canyon until it sounded like a chorus of people screaming, a tabernacle choir covered in boiling oil. I did not know at the time that the prickly pear comes from the genus Opuntia, which distinguished itself from its spiny brethren, by having not one but two kinds of prickers, minute bundles of hair-like spines at the base of larger spines, Often invisible to the naked eye, the spines are almost impossible to remove, the only way to avoid painful encounters is to treat all of them with great respect. I did not know this, nor did I know that Southwestern homeowners use prickly pear hedges for security buffers instead of concertina wire, or that you're only supposed to handle them with metal salad or barbecue tongs with the tips wrapped in duct tape, according to Maureen Gilmer in her article about eating cactuses safely. She also advocates using a blowtorch to sear off the spines. It would also have helped immensely to know that you would need a whole acre of these beverage plants to get one quart of liquid. Aside from this, the plant has a long history of causing grievous bodily harm to human beings. Take, for example, Aztec priests. As part of a bloodletting ritual, they used the prickly pear's spines to puncture their tongues and their penises. Ignorant of this secret history, I bit the plant and it bit me back. Allison was supposed to be the calm one, but you should have seen her then, tearing into her backpack, emptying and throwing things everywhere, trying to find items that might help her injured. Boyfriend, my lips bled. Pink saliva dripped from my mouth. I could barely speak. I may require medical attention, is what I tried to say, but the words came out sounding more like mooga, booga, boof. In a blur of motion, Allison, who was still crying, delved into her fanny pack and dug out her plastic compact a one-inch-by-one-inch beauty mirror with a small powder puff still attached, and then she stumbled towards me like a zombie beautician, reaching for me, eyes glazed. I had no idea what she was planning, and it made me cringe. I became even more afraid when I saw that in her other hand she held a Swiss Army knife. Listen, Dan, she said, you're going to have to stay calm. Please stick your tongue out as far as it can go. No farther. I did as best as I could. She reached into the Swiss army knife, her fingers making their way past the nail file, the saw, the reusable toothpick, the curly wine opener, the scissors, the Phillips screwdriver. At last she came to the tweezers, which she removed with some difficulty for her hands were shaking. She held my tongue in her hand. She picked at it, poked at it, scraping away at the spines while I cried out. In spite of her shaking, she worked with precision until she'd yanked out ten spines, then thirty. Allison had a look of fierce determination. Through sheer will, she stopped crying and became steady and calm. She guided her hand, using the beauty mirror to get a better view of my mouth. In a half hour, she must have plucked 50 spines. My mouth felt raw. You're gonna be okay, she kept saying. Talking and swallowing were painful. But we had to move on. We had to find the spring. We must press on, she said. The longer we stay here, the more we sweat, the thirstier we get. You can't give up now. You've got to hold yourself together. I stood up. We walked with Allison, cooing encouragements all the way. My mouth was on fire. We left behind the nibbled cactus blob and walked up a hill through a forest of spindly trees. You've got to keep going, Allison said. Her voice trailed off. She stopped and she gasped. For there, not five minutes away, for I'd been attacked by the cactus, golden oak spring poured freely down the side of a canyon. I should have been grateful, but to my ears at that moment, the sound of that water sounded like the spirits of the desert, the gods of the twigs, the gods of the cacti, the gods of the jackrabbits, the gods of the spadefoot toad, and they were laughing. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.